Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Hi, and welcome back to another episode. In our work together, the uh, Klontzes and I came up with, I think, about 13. And we called them money disorders or problematic money behaviors. We pretty much refer to them all today as hurtful or harmful or problematic money behaviors. And one that was listed in facilitating financial health that often doesn't get a lot of publicity is a problematic money behavior called the vow of poverty. And I remember this was a behavior that Ted Klontz originally kind of fleshed out. And I've given it a lot of thought recently and developed some of the uh, thinking around this behavior a little deeper than what is listed in that particular book. So, as usual, (laughs) this is the first place I've ever (laughs) talked about this and gone a little bit deeper around it, so I am sure it can be expanded even further than what I'm going to talk about. So, I think it's important that we are clear And when we're talking about this vow of poverty, I don't think anyone actually vows to exist in a state of poverty. And poverty is basically a condition or a state where you don't have enough money to meet basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter. And maybe you could be in a situation where money wouldn't even buy those things. You just don't have enough food, adequate clothing, or adequate shelter to keep you protected from the elements. I mean, that could have been existence in my home state of South Dakota 150 or 200 years ago, where if you were out here on the prairie, money wasn't going to go very far. (laughs) And you could definitely be in poverty without the basics if you didn't have the skills to know how to hunt prepare food, build shelter, sew clothes, etc. So I think in today's world, it's definitely not having the money to be able to meet your basic needs. And I have a hunch if you had asked most people who find themselves living in poverty, if they would like to continue in poverty or transcend to living a life where their basic needs were met, I would have to imagine that most people would choose to opt out of poverty in a heartbeat. It would seem to me living in poverty is incredibly stressful. So, I don't think that's anybody who takes a vow of poverty. I don't think that's what they're signing up for. I'm going to suggest that most of those who take a modern-day vow of poverty 
are actually taking a vow to live a simple life with as few of the trappings of materialism as possible. Now, you might think, as I did when I was researching this, that most Catholic priests take a vow of poverty. Well, that's not true. What I found is they're expected to lead a life of simplicity equal to the people that they serve. Now, I think a life of simplicity is much different than one of living in poverty. However, there are those that do take vows of poverty, like Buddhist monks, Franciscans, or Dominicans. They actually take a vow of poverty. I still don't think it's a vow to be living in actual poverty without your basic needs being met. Now, no matter how convincing the outward appearance of poverty might be, those that take that vow of simplicity or poverty are still supported by money from some source, especially in today's world, because money does touch everything that we do. And perhaps there's a monastery someplace that was built by the labor of the monks or that money didn't touch, that they sew all their own clothes, they they make all the thread for the clothes, they raise all the vegetables, and they don't operate on money. There's probably some place like that. But in today's world, I think money is going to touch just about everything around a person that has taken a vow of simplicity or a vow of poverty. And I, I think about Atma Gandhi. I had the privilege of visiting his museum, one of the houses where he lived in. And he took a vow of poverty and reportedly died with a net worth of a dollar. And there's several quotes to this effect, but the one that I really like, and I can't even say her name, Saryojini Nadu who is a close friend of Gandhi's, often berated her friend for his attempts to live in poverty. And she famously told him this quote, this line, do you know how much it costs every day to keep you in poverty? <laughs> Another contemporary of Gandhi, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who formed the first Indian government, said of Gandhi, I spend less than Gandhi on his tours despite traveling first class. I read that Gandhi had to have an entire train car devoted to him, which was cost a lot more than just first class. So the point here is while a leader may not personally own assets, they can have access to and control vast amounts of money. I think of Mother Teresa, who owned nothing, but she formed quite an amazing organization that supported her and the people that she was ministering to. So that's my thoughts around a vow of poverty, a vow of simplicity, that there's still money that's needed to support them. Now, the vow of poverty, when 
we are defining it as a financial behavior, is an intentional, conscious decision to minimize, even villainize, the importance of working for or accumulating money. Now, this particular mindset or financial behavior can be found amongst those in the helping professions, which would include priests and monks, ministers, nuns, spiritual and religious leaders, shamans, social workers, and uh, therapists, psychologists, mental health professionals. And I think this particular behavior usually comes from two mindsets. A righteous, holier-than-thou attitude that money corrupts, money is bad, money is evil, and that the morally superior askew it. The money scripts embraced by this mindset are typically those of the money avoidant. The hope is that by appearing not to care about money, that it's unimportant, that appearing not to need it, that the person has moral or spiritual superiority. And I think, I think of uh, training that I was once in, where the leaders of this training really embraced a vow of poverty. And in their trainings, they typically just railed against capitalism. There was really nothing good in capitalism. It was corrupt, and anybody who engaged in the field of banking or finance, basically we're doing the devil's work. We're basically caught up by the world's system, which was not held in high esteem whatsoever. And yet the leaders of this particular school were continuously asking supporters for money. They had to be supported by their organization. And most, if not all, of their supporters obtained their money from the very system that they desecrated. And many of their supporters were in banking and were in finance. So I always found that somewhat of a conundrum. And also, they never suggested what system would work better than capitalism, which I found a little bit annoying. So that's one mindset of the vow of poverty. Another mindset of the vow of poverty, and we're talking about the financial behavior, is a belief that by doing the right thing, the universe, or one's higher power, will provide all of one's basic needs for life. I suppose that there's still a spiritual or moral superiority in this particular belief, but I think there's a real genuine expectation in if you do enough good, then you'll be taken care of. I think a lot of therapists can cling to this particular belief. And there's a lot of teachings that supporters of this behavior look to in order to support that mindset. Now, I am most familiar with Christianity and Christians will look to a scripture from Matthew 6.25 through 34, which include passages that say, take no thought of your life, what you should eat, what you should drink, nor yet for your body what you should put on. 
Now, isolated and taken out of context, one might concur this means you should do nothing and just wait for food, clothing, and shelter to magically appear. Now, I've been a little bit judgmental with the use of my word magically, but it's just this deep faith that God will provide. It will all be there. Now, in the same verse, the Bible says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, which many scholars take as an invitation. The key is, what's the kingdom of God? Many scholars take this as an invitation to a new reality at that time, that your worth as a human is in who you are, your being, rather than your doing, what you do. And to further support that idea that money was important in the New Testament, over 25% of Jesus' parables, that's 11 out of 40, and over 2,300 Bible verses are on topics like wealth, possessions, tithing, saving, money, greed, money mindsets, contentment, and investing. Nowhere that I can find does Christ suggest his followers need to live in poverty. So, while this uh, problematic behavior has several mindsets, okay, it has a common outcome. And that's a lack of providing for one's self, especially for more than immediate needs. And (laughs) you would think that the U.S. almost has a universal vow of poverty, Because 70 to 80% of Americans basically live month to month, hand to mouth. I think we're all very aware of the statistic that says somewhere between 72 and 78% of Americans would have to sell something or borrow to come up with $1,000. So that's not uncommon. Now, I don't think many people have really taken a are doing that from the sense of a financial behavior of the vow of poverty. But in this, the future is not given a thought. It's here and now, right now. And there can be some real beauty in living in the here and now. And do I have enough today? Am I warm today? Do I have a good shelter over my head today? I think some of this, taking no thought, is a real encouragement to live in the moment because we spend so much of our lives living in the past and living in the future, but not living right now. But that does not mean that we give no thought to providing for our future needs. And giving some thought for future needs would be in the here and now, right now, funding a retirement account out of my income, funding, paying the premium today for insurance coverage. Many folks that have a vow of poverty believe that God will take care of them in every situation to the extent that they don't need insurance. I have had clients in the past that have held these beliefs. And while I appreciate their good intention and their sincerity, It can be devastating and has been devastating for families when the income earner 
is taken and there is no provision made because the feeling was God will provide and that almost having insurance would be an act of faithlessness, would be admitting a lack of trust in God. And the same can go for estate planning. Why need a will? So the the problem with this particular financial behavior is that many people will eventually become wards of the state, entirely dependent on social programs in the last years of their life, when working for an income is no longer possible. And unfortunately, around that time that many begin to question how uh, advisable it was to not have taken care of themselves in that way. So those that have taken this vow of poverty, like every problematic behavior that we've discussed in previous episodes, have a part of themselves that do so with a good intention. Their intention is not to make things worse on themselves. And I mean, if they do, there's even a good intention in that. So a vow of poverty includes a lot of money scripts and extreme beliefs that were put into place, typically when the person was very young, as a way of soothing a wounded part of themselves. And there's probably limitless reasons here, but it could be that there's a part of themselves that might equate having money with fears of being evil or corrupt, that these could have been formed at a young age, that having money meant you were evil, that you were corrupt. There probably was some trauma behind that, either in the family or that they may have suffered at the hands of somebody that was perceived to be rich. So not having money and believing that doing so gives one moral high ground could be a way to keep parts of us convinced that they are good, that they are not evil. Because if I have money, I am going down the road to being evil And as you drill down, what does that mean? There's typically a lot of fear and terror and trauma around what that thought is. For those of you that know the Enneagram, this is the basic fear of a type 1, of which I am a type 1, so I know a little bit about this. It could be that there may be a part of us that is afraid of failure, because it doesn't think it can successfully handle money. So there's a huge fear of failure and what that means. And handling money just to start accessing that trauma. So by declaring money evil, we can avoid it. And still look good by believing the universe will provide. Some would call this spiritual escape where... Pain is avoided and exiled, shoved aside within the system by wrapping the avoidance of that in a faux cloak of spirituality. It's called spiritual escape. It's a real disconnect, a real dissociation 
from the pain rather than dealing with that pain. It's just exiled. Another possibility is that a vow of poverty accomplishes feeding a deep need of wanting to be taken care of. And I've talked about this in a podcast in relationship to another financial behavior. And this can be driven by a need to be seen and heard. So this hope is that a vow of poverty will result in providing the need of being seen and heard to wounded parts of us. It has a good intention, but it rarely succeeds when being seen and heard and supported by others never quite happens in the way that the vulnerable part really needs. It can take a lifetime for these parts to learn that the only source of acceptance comes from within, in an IFS lens, from self-capital else, uh, in an Enneagram sense, from uh, essence or presence, from a Christian sense, from uh, Holy Spirit, and that there's no one else ultimately financially responsible for us, that we must be responsible for ourselves financially. And that can be um, pretty scary and pretty painful to these wounded parts of ourselves. Now, this can really be exacerbated when couples have one partner buying for financial success and another vested in Financial failure, if you would have it that way. One wants to accumulate. One wants to simplify and live a a very simple life. This doesn't mean that one partner's right or one partner's wrong. Both of them have parts of themselves that are maintaining their views with the best intentions for themselves and for their partner. I can imagine the one that wants success wants to take care and to support and have these basic needs and maybe even support their quest for meaning. And the other, wanting a life of simplicity, wanting the same thing, emotional well-being, and wanting to also support a quest for meaning, but from a very different platform. So... Obviously, with a couple, that is an issue that really needs to be talked through and compromised to be had, which is certainly possible. So I hope that this has been thought-provoking. It's certainly not the be-all and end-all in exploring the vow of poverty, but I hope it has uh, given you some insight. And I'd be very interested in um, hearing any thoughts that you have on this because I am sure there's some mindsets or some things that I have not thought of. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you again for your uh, emails. You can always reach out to me at rick at rickkaler.com and I would really enjoy hearing from you. Thank you, take care, and talk with you next week. 
Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode. 